horn and he did ride. King Dong, gitty gitty, kai me all a sword and a pistol by his side. The Appalachian is a very diverse place covering many states and encompassing many different traditions, many different ethnicities. And so there are many different musical traditions which are expressive of different community values. Ding dong, giddy giddy, kaimi o, and there he knelt upon the floor. Ding dong, giddy giddy, kaimi o, kaimo kimo kaimo. Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachia. Appalachia Meets World, it's Will and Neil. Tonight's episode is powered by Soar. Shaping, shaping our, our Appalachian, Appalachian region. region. Yeah, another episode, another week. How's it going, man? It, it's going good. Last Thanksgiving, uh, we, we survived. Still hit from a little a tryptophan. Got me a little dozy right now. Yeah, I got hit with a little snow. You got snow today? Yeah, it's still here. That's cool. You know, it's almost time for Christmas when it snows, right? Yep. I guess in your neck of the woods, it could be time for Halloween, though. That's true. Pictures with Santa, holiday parades, tis the season around all everybody's neck of the woods, I guess. Got your Christmas tree up? I do. It's that time of year, man. Do y'all do it right after Thanksgiving? Did you, as my next question, did you wait until after your last bite of turkey? Day after, went and cut my own tree. Man, I know. I love that tradition that you have in in your house of uh, cutting your own tree. I like it so much that we got a live tree this year. Did you? Yep. Did you cut it? uh, Nah, it was already cut. <laughs> but we have two trees now. We got uh we got our traditional one that's always uh kind of been the staple at the house. And uh we put a real one up as well this year. Nice. I gotta admit though, we didn't wait until after Thanksgiving. We actually did it before. <laughs> you did? Is that bad luck? That's hardcore. I've always, always heard it's bad luck. You got to wait till like the very end of Thanksgiving before you're allowed to put that Christmas tree up. What's the bad luck? You like I don't know. Christmas? I don't, know. I don't know. Is that kind of like wearing white after Labor Day? <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, is that the same thing? <laughs> <sighs> I don't know. What about you? I mean, I've never heard of that saying that it's bad luck we always just the day after thanksgiving we start i know we usually get into an at biz and because this is kind of a kickoff to kind of a music series we're going to have on the podcast leading up to christmas i'm going to have several episodes on music appalachian music and what what music means to appalachia as part of that (laughs) i thought i would mention uh at biz the mountain music exchange it's in Pikeville, Kentucky. It's a really a small local shop. They sell guitars, custom, electric, acoustic. They sell all music equipment. It's online, but it has its own brick and mortar too. It's a cool little store. Been going for several years. A couple of local fellas put started it, and it's still churning. So next time you're over in Pike County at Hillbilly Days, stop in and check out the folks at the Mountain Music Exchange, man. Been in business for a while now, so uh, we like to give a shout out to old local homegrowns, and uh, I'm, I'm sure that's a great place there in Pikeville. Yeah, I just thought we'd mention a, a business related to music since uh, this is the start of our music series, but we have a real historian on tonight, Ted Olson. He's a music historian. Also, I, I guess I should mention seven-time Grammy-nominated 
music historian who is also a professor at ETSU who focuses on bluegrass, old time, and country music. You think it's too early to ask Ted if he, if his favorite artist is the same as mine? Oh, you you know I'm going to ask him. Considering East Tennessee, so that yeah. would be ETSU. That would be Kenny Chesney. You know I'm going to ask. Well, I don't I don't have any doubt there. I think you have a secret love affair for Kenny. Well, you know we like the same places in life. The islands are kind of special to us. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what's your what's your uh, speaking of music? What's your favorite song then? We already know your favorite art, artist, Kenny Chesney. Do you have a favorite song? <laughs> Man, I, back where I come from is a great one. You know, it just it is one of Kenny's early hits. You know, I've always kind of just liked it. Uh, he's got a whole slew of songs that I like, but back where I come from is a classic. Do you relate to? I feel like I relate to blue, bluegrass music. I can't say that I grew up with it to be honest with you but obviously it's rich heritage rich tradition here in Appalachia I don't know if you guys never let me listen to music when I was little but I am like the worst history musical history buff like that's never really my thing I on the other hand love music and I I love bluegrass it's just it, it wasn't something that was in our house you know growing up Music in general wasn't really in our house growing up, but I love music, especially some live music. Yeah, I know. You've, you've always been more of a, of a live music fan and um, a guy that seeked out artists uh, more so than me. I mean, I appreciate a lot of music and I understand how hard it is to make, uh, which makes it more intriguing to me. Uh, but I, I, I don't have a musical ear. Uh, my wife would be the first to tell you that. I don't know. I've never really had good ears. Well, at least you have Kenny, and he is in that country music genre, whereas Appalachia is often thought of as the birthplace of country music. Mm -hmm. However, I think Mr. Olson, um, when we have him on, Professor Olson, may argue that point, or at least argue the point that Bristol is the epicenter of country music just based on some of his writings, some of his uh, research. Maybe we can go ahead and get him on here, get the, the the historian on here, and let's hear from him, hear about what he has to say yeah. in regards to Appalachia and Appalachian music. Yeah, it'd be much better than listening to me, I promise you that. I'm looking forward to this. I am too. Let's go. On tonight's episode, we have special guest Dr. Ted Olson. He has a PhD in English and Southern Studies. He's a professor of Appalachian Studies as well as Bluegrass, Old Time, and Country Music Studies at East Tennessee State University. He's received a range of recognition as a music historian, including seven Grammy nominations. He's produced and curated Appalachian music, including four box sets for Bear Family Records, the Bristol Sessions, the Johnson City Sessions, the Knoxville Sessions, and Tennessee Ernie Ford's early recordings, as well as four albums for the Great Smoky Mountain Association, the Rhino Records 50th Anniversary Electra Folkway, and a recent collection of Doc Watson's greatest recordings. He's also written and edited numerous books centered around Appalachian music and folklore, 
along with articles and essays, reviews, poems, oral histories, to include the music section editor of the Encyclopedia of Appalachia. He is also, I want to mention, co-producer and co-host of the recent six-part podcast series, Sepia Tones, Exploring Black Appalachian Music. In addition to all this, he also performs solo at numerous music festivals and venues, and most recently was awarded the Ramsey Award for Lifetime Achievement from the East Tennessee Historical Society. We appreciate you taking the time and being on the episode. Do you mind if we call you Ted? Oh, please do. And it's a real pleasure to be on your on your podcast. Your podcast has gotten a lot of attention, and so it's like I say, it's it's a it's an honor to be here with you on the podcast to be talking about. The region we all love so well. If you've listened to some of our episodes, you'll know the first question I'm about to ask. As Appalachian is big on history, big on tradition, Neil and I's family is big on tradition as well. And one of the traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holidays. And so we usually have more appetizers than the actual meal. So we always ask all our guests, do you have a favorite appetizer or just holiday dish? Well, I would probably say, you know, it's nothing too fancy, but, uh, you know, possibly pumpkin pie. You know, I'm just appreciative of anyone who's willing to cook and, and willing to invite me to the table. Because, <laughs> you know, to be honest, uh, you know, there are a lot of great cooks in the world and I'm not one of them. Uh, I'm an appreciative uh, bread breaker at, at, at mealtime during the holidays. Well, you can't go wrong with pumpkin pie. It's uh, always uh, one of my one of my favorite desserts for sure. We'll just go ahead and dive right in since you are historian and and a professor in bluegrass, old time and country music studies. Just for our listeners, what is the difference between Appalachian music, old time music and country music? Not just our listeners. Give give Neil some knowledge, too, because (laughs) I, I need to know. Well, you know, I'd probably start out by saying, as I as I often say in classes, to be truthful, there is not just one Appalachian music, but there are many uh, diverse Appalachian music traditions. So therefore, we would say Appalachian music's plural. And I, I'm not the only one to make that point. I've heard others to make that point, such as Bill C. Malone, who, who wrote an essay about Appalachian music and said something similar. So I, I simply mean to say is that Appalachia is a very diverse place covering many states and encompassing many different traditions, many different ethnicities. And so there are many different musical traditions which are expressive of different community values. The beautiful thing, though, of course, is that there's a lot of kind of sharing and blending back and forth. And uh, what makes the study of of the music of this region so fascinating is uh, exploring and in some sense unraveling some of the mysteries behind where music came from and, and, you know, which groups uh, maybe were the first to introduce a particular idea or a particular repertoire piece and shared it with other groups. And then to kind of map out the dissemination of these different musical traditions and, and then in the, in the process kind of uh, imparting on others an appreciation for the, those diverse traditions and, and that sharing is what motivates me. So yeah, Appalachian uh, musics, I think, is the place to start from. Country music would, clinically speaking, be a commercial music tradition. I mean, it sounds contradictory that a commercial music is a tradition, but by that I simply mean to say uh, country music started, you know, when people in the 1920s took traditional music and, shall we say, 
packaged it, reshaped it to appeal to the you know widest possible audience for the purpose of selling records and shall we say finding an audience for radio performances and thereby selling products that sponsored that music. So country music is really at heart a commercial music that encompasses or incorporates uh, many different traditions. And, and so I don't mean to be too cagey with that, but, but simply to say, when I think of country music, I'm honestly thinking of everything that happened to traditional music as it was being packaged and shaped uh, beginning in the 1920s on into the present day. Country music is approaching its 100th anniversary uh, since it was kind of first identified as a commercial force in the early 1920s. Saying all that, of course, it has its roots in far earlier music worlds, and we don't want to neglect all those influences on early country music that were from the 19th century or the 18th right. century. Things like ballad singing and and minstrelsy and, and other kinds of musical backgrounds and, and blues, of course, that helped to shape the sound of country music that people came to know and loved. Contemporary country today in the 21st century, sometimes to many listeners, seems so far removed from that earlier country sound. But if there is a connection, it's that they were commercial from the 20s on into the present day. Is that is, is that the same for bluegrass music? Is it Bill Monroe that commercialized bluegrass music and kind of the same idea? Same idea, yeah. Although I would say bluegrass kept closer to tradition than country did after the 20s. Bluegrass always kind of seemingly had one foot in traditional music and one foot in commercial music. Um, it was formulated in a commercial environment, namely the Grand Ole Opry stage uh, by Bill Monroe and, and through uh, records or, or you know, 78 RPM releases that were made of that repertoire that Bill M Monroe uh, recorded with his band, the Bluegrass, his Bluegrass Boys, which is where the name of the genre came from. Yeah, so bluegrass kind of parallels country music, but was 20 years later. So whereas country originated as a commercial music in the 1920s, bluegrass emerged in the 1940s. But again, acknowledging that, and Bill Monroe was the first to acknowledge that uh, bluegrass had uh, its influences in traditional musics of different cultures. And to his credit, Bill Monroe was very clear that uh, even though people attributed the genre to him, he was pretty quick to give credit to people from whom he had learned to, to perform and learn repertoire, including the great African-American musician Arnold Schultz. So yeah, bluegrass is kind of a, a ripple uh, effect from mainstream country, but that ripple became a mighty force in and of itself. And, and by the late 1950s, 1960s and onward, most people viewed bluegrass as a separate genre from country. The way that music originates it could be built by industry it could be, be built by one psyche etc but really place kind of defines a genre, a genre i guess you could argue how, how does in your mind how does place affect music i guess how has appalachia shaped a lot of those genres that you just mentioned well, one thing is definitely true that Appalachia has played a huge role in influencing country music and bluegrass music. I think sometimes people in, in their enthusiasm for the sense of place that Appalachia has brought to those musical genres, some people have taken that, that next step and claim that Appalachia should receive the primary credit for producing country and, and bluegrass. In all honesty, I I once kind of was in that camp. I mean, I, I once 
felt like Appalachia should be given, you know, considerable level of credit. And I, I still feel as if much credit needs to be given to Appalachia for having uh, shaped those genres. The the truth is, I guess, is the, the historical record proves is that other regions and other groups also contributed to the creation of country and, and to some degree bluegrass. So what, what I do in my job as a music historian is, is try to tell the full story. And I, I tr try to represent the Appalachian contributions to country and to, to bluegrass and, and to celebrate those influences and to draw attention to the better known and the lesser known artists from Appalachia who have contributed to those genres. All the while, though, I'm become increasingly aware that we have to be careful and, and, and not call, say, country music and Appalachian music entirely, because that leaves out Southern influences, Western influences, the impact of Northern cities and kind of providing studio places and, and uh, in important venues that created an environment in which uh, country was allowed to take off commercially. I'm thinking, you know, Chicago with right. the uh, National Barn Dance, New York uh, City with those amazing studios they had there and so many great country artists recorded in New York City. So, you know, they often call America a uh, melting pot. Well, you know, many aspects of that melting pot can be heard in country and in bluegrass today. So I, I think it's important to not get too cagey in trying to, uh, you know, associate country and bluegrass with just one region. I think it's very important to credit those regions that contributed, in this case, our, our beloved region of, of folks listening tonight, Appalachia. And, and, and again, I'm very dedicated to telling that part of the story. But I, I also do think it's important to study. And I know people are out there studying these other aspects of the story, the other regional contributions. Several years ago, a gentleman did a study of which two parts of the country contributed the largest number of seminal pioneering musical acts to country music. And two areas were identified by this scholar. One of them was Appalachia, but the other was the area encompassing the places where Texas, Louisiana, and Oklahoma met. That gives a sense that that's another kind of important seedbed for, for country music. And then beyond that, of course, other places as well contributed important early musical you know, artists and musical sounds and styles to the blend that is country music. And we want to uh, dive in a little bit further on country music, especially Bristol and, and mainstream country. But I want to briefly, I think I read in your bio, you're not originally from Appalachia, but that you worked there as a youth and that you chose to settle in East Tennessee. I just wanted to ask you kind of what drew you to the Appal Appalachia Mountains to settle. And when you moved, I think I read that you had kind of these preconceived notions and impressions of the region and how have those changed or have they changed since you have, I don't know how long you've been in the region, but I'm, I'm assuming it's been a while. Sure. And, and, and that's a complex question, but, but <laughs> yes, my view of Appalachian culture and music uh, specifically, you know, the, my views have definitely changed since, you know, when I was a starry-eyed teenager um, attending the Smithsonian Folklife Festival, then called the Festival of American Folklife there on the mall in Washington, near where I grew up in, in DC, um, or the uh, National Folk Festival, uh, which was also held there. 
um, at those festivals, which of course, you know, world famous festivals, I heard some amazing artists, you know, frankly, from all over the world, and they were all fascinating. But I particularly, I think, connected with artists from Appalachia and perhaps also from the Deep South. And uh, the, the artists from Appalachia that I connected with, a couple of them I kind of befriended. I mean, I, I mustered up the courage to talk with them. And I'm, I'm thinking of, for example, the uh, Virginia Foothills uh, bluesman named John Jackson. Some people know his incredible music. He was very active in the, you know, when I was growing up in the 70s. He had uh, worked for years as a grave digger in his, uh, you know, home region of uh, the foothills of the, of the Blue Ridge in Virginia. And then he had moved to a uh, Washington, D.C. to find work. He uh, drew from his musical talent to kind of help augment his living. And so he played everywhere in D.C. You know, he was a voice of, of a rural space in a big city, and he was really expert at communicating the values he grew up with to this world in, into which he had moved, you know, shall we say the urban you know, scene and, and, and value system. So he, he was a, a great interpreter of traditional Appalachian culture, you know, an African-American fellow that I befriended very at a young age. And what he did for me was to take the time to talk to me of his story and to listen to my story. And my story, of course, as a young person, wasn't very long or anything, <laughs> but it was a story that he was interested in hearing. He was kind of curious why I wanted to, you know, attend the festival and listen to all these great music from all over the world, including from Appalachia. And um, he just humanized Appalachia for me. I mean, he was an Appalachian person by, by birth and, and upbringing. And, and uh, he was taking the time to share with me his story. And that moved me and it, it uh, led me to want to talk to other Appalachian artists. You know, one of the, shall we say, motivations for me to get to know Appalachian people is, well, honestly, I encountered Appalachian music in DC. DC was known at the time as the bluegrass capital of, of America, um, because there were so many bands that had moved there or had grown up there, kind of emerged there, people who loved bluegrass, who found work there because there were a lot of people who could uh, kind of patronize their, their gigs and buy their records and that sort of thing. A number of the bands were from Appalachia. And so when I would attend these shows, there were a lot of Appalachian songs and stories told at the bluegrass concert. But I was also very interested in, in knowing the, um, the, the musicians who were speaking from, not from a professional musical perspective, but were amateur musicians who had a, a deep kind of familial connection to the music and loved it so much they kept traditions alive, even as they worked other jobs by, by day or during the week. And those folks often had the most uh, rich and, and, and uh, moving kind of experiences growing up in their part of Appalachia. And it was important to me to hear those stories. And, and, and a lot of them were very, you know, affirming of life and affirming of, of enduring difficult times and, 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 and finding a way to, to make a living despite the challenges of being in a, you know, what for them in DC would have been something perhaps of an alien environment, simply because uh, people need to survive and they need to work together to you know make sure that people treat each other with respect and and provide each other with uh, you know kind of a mutual uh, respect of each other's humanity. So I found these people profoundly respectable and 
um, wise in a way that uh, perhaps in, in a big city, I, I wasn't used to people taking the time to talk to me. I guess that's really what it was. And so when people like John Jackson or Gene Ritchie or others took the time to to talk to, to me as just a member of the audience who happened to find their music very powerful. You know, it wasn't the usual performer audience, you know, barrier there. It was, it was basically, we were, you know, mutual humans who, who had a, you know, shall we say a, a love for the music and a, and a curiosity about how the music could be kept alive. Well, the, this all for me uh, affirmed the power of place and the power of family and community and, in uh, making cult cultural expressions found in the music more than merely a saleable skill, but rather something that was far more profound than simply a commodity. Uh, th this was a roadmap for living a good life, and 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 I pursued it. Uh, also, as a kid in D.C., of course, you know. I'd open magazines and see ads from uh, organizations like Save the Children, which would feature Appalachian children as kind of the reason why people should submit, you know, send in money to support those organizations. And, and of course, modern day perspective, looking back, that was profoundly patronizing for, you know, places like that, seeking to fundraise to use uh, images of people in Appalachia who, was, who were struggling perhaps but perhaps didn't agree to be in those those ads. It was you know, for perhaps done against, you know, surely done against their will. Um, but be that as it may, um, all these uh, different uh, situations conspired for me to develop a profound curiosity to actually spend time in Appalachia. So, you know, everything to this point had been uh, experienced in the big city. Well, that was only, you know, the, the uh, tip of the iceberg because, you know, what needed to happen for me was to actually see the place and, and get to know people in their in their homes. And if they would allow me to visit them, well, I could perhaps learn something, you know, mind you, this was the time of Watergate. This was the time of the you know Vietnam War, and it was a difficult time for America. And I saw it all on my paper route as I delivered the Washington Post to people's front doorsteps. I read about the trouble the world was in, and I was, I think, seeking some sort of grounding or some semblance of roots for myself. I don't think I had the delusion that I could, you know, enter Appalachia and suddenly find my identity. I, I don't think it was anything like that. I think it was simply that there had to be some sort of journey for me to experience some other perspective on the world to complement my own perspective from the city. And that maybe in that process, I would feel, you know, kind of more grounded and, and more aware of, uh, you know, what human life was all about. I mean, it wasn't all about making money and it wasn't all about uh, vying for power in, you know, in a political world that was DC. It was, it, I think it was more about learning to uh, become part of the human community and music was an important way to, to share with other people and learn from other people. So long story short is I ended up in West Virginia as a teenager and while I left uh, Appalachia to go to school and, and work at one point, I pretty quickly came back. And I've been in Appalachia more or less uh, uh, ever since the late 1970s. Neil and, and I talk all the time, the mountains have a way of pulling pulling people back in. Definitely. And uh, different different parts of Appalachia. I mean, I can say that I, I, I've lived in different parts of East Tennessee and Western North Carolina and 
Eastern Kentucky and uh, you mentioned and, uh, Barberville, Kentucky. What what were you what what was your time there? Was it at Union College or absolutely? It- I was a okay. I was a teacher at uh, Union College for a few years, and uh, um, it was profoundly important to me uh, the time I spent there. One thing that happened while I was there, in addition to uh, getting to know that part of Eastern Kentucky, which is a beautiful place, beautiful part of the of that state, is that I met some people who kind of changed my life, uh, building on the theme of meeting musicians who change your life. I, I met uh, the acclaimed author, James Still, you know, who lived fairly close by and uh, spent about 10 years of my life uh, editing James Still's poems and, and oh, wow. short stories and uh, also trying to interpret his uh, important literature and, and folkloric writings for for a you know general audience. So four books came out of, out of that uh, meeting, and it and a lot of that began while I was at uh, Union College. But awesome. you know, destiny has it that sometimes we need to leave a place that's teaching us a lot and move on to another place that might teach us more or other things. And I moved on from uh, Barberville and Union College to East Tennessee State University in Johnson City. Tennessee, continued to study and interpret uh, East Kentucky culture, but added to that uh, new studies of uh, East Tennessee history and, and culture and music. Speaking of the the Johnson City connection and, and the, kind of the history of country music, y- you have produced the collections, as I mentioned in the beginning, the Bristol Sessions, the Johnson City Sessions, as well as the Knoxville Sessions. But the Bristol Sessions really get most of the hype, or at least in regards to country music, Bristol's thought of as the birthplace of country music. And I think some may argue that while, yes, the Bristol sessions are the most, I guess, thought of, we kind of often leave out the Knoxville sessions, the Johnson City sessions, and some of the other music that was generated around Bristol uh, at that time. So I guess the question is, you know, what what do mainstream fans what 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 do we get wrong about the country music genre? Is Bristol the birthplace, or is all of Appalachia the birthplace of country music? Well, I like what you said. The latter thing that you said there, um, and and to rephrase it again here, I honestly think that uh, we are much better off if we don't allow slogans and adages to you know, shape our thinking about uh, our history. You know, I, I've worked with uh, studying and promoting and, and exploring the Bristol Sessions for many years now and have produced a book on the topic and, and two CD uh, sets on the topic. And while I, lo- I love the records from the Bristol Sessions, and I think the story is a compelling one, I have grown to think that those slogans, that somehow the uh, Bristol Sessions were the birthplace of country music and somehow were the big bang of country music, are completely uh, unhelpful to the general public in terms of truly appreciating the uh, origins of country music. I mean, for one thing, you know, there are people who have claimed that the birthplace of country music would be a place like Atlanta or Chicago, or New York City, or other places. All those uh, city environments were places where rural musicians traveled to make records in the early to mid-1920s, long before the Bristol Sessions occurred. It's reductionist to try to fit all of uh, the emergence of country music into one location recording session that happened over two weeks in the you know, summer of 1927, which would fall five years after the emergence 
of uh, you know, really the first records that have been uh, by many others labeled as, as country music. So I would simply ask people to keep an open mind and, and listen to uh, many different early uh, records of, of traditional country music, you know, that point at which old time music was being shaped into a commercial sound that came to be labeled at the time hillbilly music, which then of course, using a far more uh, politically correct term by, shall we say the late thirties uh, into the forties and fifties came to be called country music. You know, hillbilly obviously is a pejorative and, and an insult. Um, so the, that initial term was scrapped. And I think that was, that was a good move by the record industry, but uh the, the, getting back to the Bristol sessions, hearing those recordings uh, reminds one that, uh, sure, uh, Appalachia played a huge role in shaping the sound of modern country music. But uh, uh, as soon as one says that and, and, and appreciates those fine recordings from uh, Bristol 1927, one should also then listen to amazing recordings that happened in 1923, 1924, five, six. One should listen to uh, recordings by people who sold, uh, by an estimate says, maybe a million uh, copies of, of releases. I'm thinking of Ernest Stoneman before the Bristol Sessions had major selling records. Uh, Vernon Dahlhart, who was from Texas. So anyone who's claiming he wasn't legitimately country, we should remember, you know, he was from West Texas. Um, certainly, a, you know, a, a place from which uh, country music emerged during its long history. So Vernon Dahlhart was uh, an artist who uh, started to release records as early as the 1924-25 uh, and was, was having uh, uh, major hits uh, before the Bristol sessions were dreamed up by Ralph Peer. So, and then, of course, in the immediate aftermath of the Bristol Sessions of 1927 were these other incredibly, shall we say, fruitful and uh, electric, uh, I use that word as a descriptor, um, and, and literally too, um, because it was electric recording by 1928 and 1929 that created those brilliant sounding records that happened in the wake of the Bristol Sessions, uh, such as the Johnson City Sessions of 1928 and 29 such as the Knoxville sessions of 29 and 30, such as uh, location recording sessions, which occurred uh, in Winston-Salem and in Ashland, Kentucky, and other places in the late 20s and uh, early 1930s, which also produced recordings that are of you know, timeless merit and were quite influential. I've tried to kind of keep an open mind as a scholar and, and, and study all these different movements as, as deeply as I possibly can. My final takeaway is that they're all important. You know, just like, like a parent would not choose one child over another. You know, I would never ever claim like one of the topics that I've studied or one of the sessions I've studied is somehow more important than another. Neil likes to think my parents chose choose him, but I beg to differ. <laughs> yeah, uh, to to your point there, and I and I kind of don't think you'll answer this question, but do you have a favorite? country music artist like in our family my mom always says will is her favorite but over your studies i mean is there one that particularly always stands out to you or that you prefer over all the others well that's a good question and and a fair question you know and, and i've been asked a question along those lines once or twice before so maybe i'll continue in that vein because it's it's pretty heartfelt is that my favorite musician is the one i'm studying at the moment where i'm talking so for example Right now, 
I'm 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 living and 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 dreaming and thinking and and studying and and promoting and uh, the music of Doc Watson because that's the current album I I have just uh, released you know basically this month the box set Doc Watson Life's Work a retrospective has just been uh, released and and uh, we have a, a series of events and promotional activities uh, underway and if you'd asked me. A year ago, I would have probably said Tennessee Ernie Ford because I was working on a Tennessee Ernie Ford project and I was living, breathing and dreaming and, and uh, studying and promoting Tennessee Ernie Ford every day of the week, 24-7. So that said, when I, when I study an artist or I study a, a topic, I don't leave it behind. It, 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 you know, I carry it with me, and and I, I have a profound fondness and appreciation for, you know, anyone I've I've studied along the way, anyone I've met along the way, you know, where we've had a, a meeting of the minds, like John Jackson, and way back in the '70s, I think of John Jackson a lot, and and uh, just you know, try to live my life honoring people like that, you know, keeping their stories alive, uh, because John's not with us, but. Uh, his Piedmont blues sound from uh, the foothills of Appalachia, you know, really deserves to be heard and appreciated by a new generation. As a, as a teacher, you know, at a college, I really feel as if I'm serving the next generation stories from previous generations. And my, my main uh, hope is that I, I do so with fairness and clarity. Very good uh, political answer. I think my mom I think our mom would answer the question in the same way when it came to Neil and I. <laughs> <laughs> With current country music, it's a little bit different than uh, what most people consider country. Do you even consider an artist like one of my favorites, Kenny Chesney, a, a country music artist anymore? Well, it's funny you should mention Kenny because, of course, Kenny's a graduate of my school, East Tennessee yes, State yeah. University, yeah. and I've heard ample number of stories about how Kenny arrived and learned how to play the guitar from Jack Toddle and, you know, toured, I think, to Russia with uh, the ETSU Bluegrass Band and just kind of quickly developed this great facility with singing and songwriting. And just next thing anyone knew, he was a superstar. So, you know, that that's, uh, speaks of his uh, drive and his talent and, and uh, you know, whatever, uh, you know, kind of motivated him. Anyone else would do well to pay attention to that and learn from it. But uh, and of course, he had his inborn, you know, his his talent, you know, that all of us are born with a talent. And his was clearly just simply needing to be brought out by the, his mentors and his teachers and very proud of what Kenny Chesney's done for sure. And and I, I like Kenny Chesney's music. I like the music of many in, in country and certainly in bluegrass and Americana. My my heart is, I think, more partial to the older country, you know, from uh, earlier eras. I mean, if, if I may be honest about that, simply because I feel as if they're closer to the roots of the music that I study and that I, I love and that I grew up, uh, uh, you know, around in, in, in the ways that I described earlier. And the people I knew who made that music has, uh, you know, their legacies need to be uh, carried forward. And I feel as if country artists, even mainstream country artists of maybe, I don't even want to mention names, but of earlier generations, I think were perhaps more aware of those traditions uh, and more 
connected to them. And I feel as if maybe the, the genre itself, the people who controlled the industry, allowed at least some of them to express those connections to tradition without kind of telling them. I mean, some were um, absolutely motivated to keep close to some kind of traditional sound, and they fought against the industry to keep that, uh, you know, what many fans deem a more authentic sound. I mean, the word authentic is a dangerous one because it's, well, you know, it's a little subjective. But um, yeah, I love I love artists from earlier eras in country, and I, I listen to them all the time. And um, I'm, I may or may not ever do a project related to some of these people, but I'll always uh, admire their artistry. And, and uh, you know, as far as contemporary country versus the old days, I do share with those people who don't hear 20s era country in 21st century country, you know, that there's somehow unescapable, you know, irreversible gulch between what's happening today and back then. But even as I say that, if one looks at the history of country music, there are often situations where kind of the older sounds, the older traditions get brought back whenever the culture seems to ask for it or demand it. So I'm thinking, for example, early 1970s when the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band did the Will the Circle Be Unbroken album. I mean, that was a, a resounding uh, clarion call that uh, country music needed to remember its roots. And and then, of course, other artists picked up on that and country music supported, you know, a certain group of artists who were closer to, uh, you know, shall we say the origins of country music. And country music is a complex field, so, you know, or genre. So certainly... Um, there's room for diversity there, and there should be. I think that we that country music's come a long way since Harlan Howard referred to it as nothing but three chords and the truth. I, I know for myself, when I think about country music, I more think about the sound that's re- or, or the music that's relatable to me. And, and it might be traditional. It might be new age. It might be what some refer to as bro country. Uh, <laughs> Um, but it, it it always comes back to that place and what's relatable to me. I know that you have an or, or, or an essay or, an, or at least an article on the Ken Burns documentary where you kind of break it down, and he even leaves out anything past 1995. I think for for a purpose. Why why do you think that purpose is, and why do you think that this bro country or the new age has kind of uh, been taking out of the traditional country music? And I do want to mention that the music that we heard at the beginning of this episode is your solo. Yeah, and and thanks a lot for your interest in that piece. Uh, I just, you know, I'm honored to share some from my own music with uh, your listeners, and that, uh, you know, a banjo piece that was uh, influenced by uh, 1920s era old time music. You know, back when old time was influencing early country and and uh, but of course the the ballad itself froggy went accordion is centuries old you know so that's just an example of the the deep roots of early country music but i think your your perspective on you know having an open mind about the music that you listen to as long as it speaks to you it's you know it's good music um, regardless of any other factors involved and i think that's a great uh, philosophy and it, frankly i you know it's a philosophy that despite my scholarly connection to older sounds and styles and whatnot, I'm, I'm definitely a fan and an appreciator of more contemporary musics that, uh, that I, I think express um, some kind of human resonance uh, that, that express real human emotions and, and, and musically are interesting. And, and that would go for all the genres, you know, country, 
uh, bluegrass, you know, jazz, uh, rock, you know, you name it. If it's good music, it's something we all ought to pay attention to. I was just going to say, as a couple of Eastern Kentucky boys, what do you think about uh, US 23 or the country music highway? Well, I, I think it's something that uh, people in Eastern Kentucky or people from Eastern Kentucky should be very proud of because Eastern Kentucky has produced an amazing number of uh, major country stars and major country musicians and songwriters and you, you name it. It's a proud tradition. And to kind of connect the dots and create a, a highway that honors a lot of those people, I think, is, is a natural you know, action. And, and uh, what could be a better way to get to know certain artists than to visit where they grew up or where they're from? So Until this episode, I thought that was the birthplace of country music. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that's that's exactly why it's important to not limit uh, one's appreciation of something to just one event or one artist, you know, but that, you know, everything we're alluding to has been influential on country music. And why not leave it at that and just have an open mind that that it's all equally important in its own way. Referring back to Ken Burns and that that uh, film, Country Music, you know, that film had problems at both both ends. That, that film had problems in terms of its very romanticized treatment of the earlier uh, years of country music. I mean, people as important as Vernon Dahlhart were just kind of glossed over. And, you know, they, you know, Hook, Line and Sinker kind of started the rise of country music with the Bristol Sessions, which was a convenient pre-existent narrative. And um, it's one that I know real well, but I honestly spoke with some of the researchers and provided some uh, alternate narratives. And, you know, my, my hope was that they would uh, actually focus on some of these alternate narratives and weave them together in their, in their kind of master narrative, but it, it didn't really happen. And I, I did, you know, try to stay in communication with that team as they were developing their script, you know, to no avail. So, um, you know, that's kind of one perspective on that. And, and, and my role as a uh, scholar is to be an advocate for the stories that I've studied and, and I, I've studied the Bristol sessions as you know as much as anyone, you know, perhaps more. I don't know, but uh, my point is is that I was happy to share my perspective on that event with the Ken Burns team, which I did. I took them there and introduced them to the site and that sort of thing. It's just that that's where the communications ended. You know what I mean? It's, it's sure. I you know, can only imagine that another filmmaker will come along at some point and try to tell the story of early country music. And my hope is that they're receptive to these other parts of the of the, uh, you know, other feeder streams into the, you know, the river of country music. I think that's a, a good segue into sepia tones. You know, the African-American heritage, it plays a big part. And there's there's that rich tradition there that often gets forgotten. Can you just talk about the significance of that podcast? I've listened to two episodes. I don't know if you've come out with the third the third yet. I, I know it's a ser- going to be a series of six. I've listened to a couple. They're excellent. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, Sepia Tones as a podcast was created during the uh, lockdown, you know, during the pandemic. I approached a gentleman, scholarly friend of mine, uh, William Turner, who's uh, an acclaimed uh, historian and, and sociologist and uh, the foremost expert on Black Appalachia. And I said, Bill, wouldn't it be a, a good thing to do right now, you know, in, in the wake of the George Floyd situation that happened in 2020 and, you know, other situations along those lines that were, you know, just so tragic and, and, and that had grown out of misunderstandings and 
cultural understanding is what you know my my life's research has been about and a lot of it's been focused on music and to some degree also literature and folklore and this story i think of sepia tones which is subtitled exploring black appalachian music grew out of conversations with bill turner during lockdown i had originally kind of decided that well wouldn't it be great to make an album of you know black musicians from appalachia who could sing from their perspective on uh, on the region that we all mutually love and and and, and share as our home and our our place of of our you know primary identity is what shaped us so that was a great idea bill was right on board we started to talk about that but we couldn't honestly find during lockdown a way to make that happen you know because obviously you need studios you need an infrastructure to make that work so it it was the a good project but not the right time but with right, the energy right. that we created, we approached an organization called the Great Smoky Mountains Association, which is a non-for-profit organization in support of Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And the park itself had an initiative to kind of raise awareness of uh, the important roles of African-Americans in the park experience there in, in uh, Southern Appalachia. So they, they had this project already kind of underway that wasn't focused on music. So we kind of partnered with the Great Smoky Mountains Association and the National Park to create what seemed like the best, most kind of feasible option for telling this story, which was a podcast. So we just worked together and generated a podcast series, Sepia Tones. Thus far, two episodes have been released in addition to our introductory podcast. So technically there are three out there, but um, two labeled as sepia tones, one labeled as part of the Smoky Mountain Air, which is kind of the, the umbrella uh, podcast series that uh, you know sepia tones is kind of tucked into. We have uh, four more uh, sepia tones episodes in the can, as they say, ready to be released to the world over the upcoming months. We have you know, interviews with uh, important musicians and uh, also interviews uh, with other scholars and other activists and whatnot on specific themes. So what we're working toward really is to portray some general themes and then interview and explore some specific issues in the interpretation of Appalachian music, you know, conjunction with African-American history in Appalachia. So thus far, it's been an amazing experience. At the end of the day, what we hope is that it is an, you know, a good experience for other people to sit down at the table, so to speak, with us in those podcasts, you know, listen to the music, listen to the stories, listen to the analysis, the commentary, as it were, and to leave the proverbial table with a new sense of respect for each other. It's a really cool idea. It's a really cool series. It's Sepia Tones, if anybody wants to search for it, S-E-P-I-A, but I'll also put it in the show notes. I had two quick questions for you. I know Neil already asked you your favorite artist, but do you have a favorite song? Favorite song. Is that <laughs> I have favorite one? songs. It depends on the day I'm listening. You know, I'd, I'd mentioned Doc Watson earlier because we've got this, I'm working on this, uh, re- promoting this new box set of his life's work. So let me pick a Doc Watson song that every time I hear it, I'm just so moved. Every, every, every recording on here is a favorite, but I would say that probably puts a smile on my face. Every time I hear it is Doc Watson singing Tennessee Stud. Oh, yeah. You know, it's it's a lot of people's favorite song of Doc's, but uh, it's certainly among mine. And 
And that's not in any way, shape or manner to say it's better or worse than any other. It's just a delightful performance that I grew up with. It led me to this moment here today where I'm speaking to you guys and, and uh, saying that everybody needs to hear, you know, this kind of project that brings Doc's music from 1941 to 2009. I guess it's the final recording in the set. You know, cool. Tennessee Stud is is a, is a track that uh, brought Doc to, you know, the, the larger world, kind of took him out of the folk world into the mainstream world. And uh, it's such a sublimely uh, charming performance and so flawless. As a musician myself, and as any musician would say, you have to marvel when a when a musician can effortlessly with a with a full band of people he's probably never played with before pull off such a consummate performance as, as the uh, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band's performance uh, with Doc Watson of, of Tennessee Stud and, and the warmth of the vocals and the humor and the sound effects that he gets with his guitar and the precision of his solos and, and his interplay with the other musicians. It's, it's, it's a sublime experience. Very cool. I, I have one other quick question. And obviously you can hear uh, the passion for live music that you have or for music in general as you play your own music in, in music venues and festivals throughout the world. If you could only attend a live show or, or one concert, one live show for the rest of your life, what would it, would it be or who would it be? Well, that's a great question. I'd probably say a logical choice for me at this Point in my life for so many reasons would be you know Merle Fest. I mean, you know, again, that ties in with Doc Watson, but quite beyond that, Merle Fest is a celebration of, of Doc's son, Merle Watson, who died tragically in the 80s. And he was an amazing guitarist in his own right and played with his father. But the reason I think that that festival is so transcendent is it it evokes place. I mean, it's it's definitely a collection of people who love Appalachian music who are gathered there. It's big enough to be extremely diverse in terms of the kinds of music that it might be brought there. On any given day or any given moment at Merle Fest, one is going to hear, you know, the creme de la creme, say to, so to speak, of the Americana field, the bluegrass field, the traditional country field, old time field, blues field, and beyond. So, I mean, it's it's amazing the the artists who are committed to uh, participating in it. And it, it all kind of evokes the memory of you know these master musicians, Doc and Merle Watson. But quite beyond that, uh, uh, Merle Fest is all about Appalachian music. It's all about American music, and it's. It's all, you know, it's a cheerful environment of people enjoying the spring weather in Western North Carolina. It's, it's you know, a reliably fun and uh, heartwarming experience. All right. So I get a couple quick questions now. Uh, I always ask all of our guests this question, but I'm just out of curiosity. Um, and your perspective is a, is a unique one. But if you if you just mention to me the first thing that comes to your mind when I say this word, Appalachia. What is it? Green. I like it. I like it. And I know we've talked about the all the places that you you've lived and the places that you've been. I know where you where you are now is kind of where you've spent, uh, I guess, a significant amount of time. But where do you call home? Uh, right where I am, uh, Johnson City, Tennessee. But beyond that, you know, Appalachia. 
Perfect. Yeah, great answer. And, and uh, Dr. Olson or, or Ted, I think, well, I know you are the first Grammy Award nominee that we've ever had on our show. That's a definite. <laughs> well, thank you. And I uh, feel as if it's important to represent Appalachian music at an event like that. It's, it's all out of one's control. All one can do is release records that are meaningful to oneself. And that's what I try to do with historical albums. The albums that I've done that have, that have received that recognition from the, the Grammy uh, voters, every last one of them has been an historical album. You know, I didn't make, but rather that I interpreted and that I found some way to bring that music into a common space, namely an, an album, so that uh, a particular story can be shared with people. And so just really honored to be, a, you know, a part of those projects. And well, we we uh, appreciate your Appalachian humbleness and we are ha uh, definitely honored to have you on the episode and we definitely appreciate your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Uh, good luck to you. And uh, thank you for all that you're doing to kind of share stories and, uh, you know, kind of deepen our awareness and our appreciation for the region that we all love so well. Thanks, Thanks so much. All right, man. Well, see, I told you, you didn't need to listen to me. Ted had all the goods on, on history of music. Again, once again, I have to interview people and talk to people to learn and I'm glad that uh, Mr. Olson came on because it really helped me in uh, learning a, a little bit more about the the history of music here in our great Appalachia region. Yeah it was great to hear about the not only the Bristol ses sessions but the Knoxville sessions the jo Johnson City sections there's such rich history uh, tradition there that when people think of country music you know they think of bristol but they forget about johnson city they forget about knoxville they forget about all the things that that ted was uh discussing and talking about and what his research has been on and it's pretty cool to know how diverse and how non-localized the country music was and still is today it's great to hear though we both have a love for kenny <laughs> yeah. I told you I'd get it in. You got that question. I told you. In. Yeah, yeah. I told you. I also want to give a shout out to his podcast. I know we talked about it, but Sepia Tones, it's really cool. Just gives a uh, history of kind of black or African American music in, in Appalachia. And if you have some time, take a listen. It's pretty cool. He and Dr. Turner team up on that, who's been a former guest of ours. Obviously, a great historian and speaker as well. So give it a listen. But uh, also, you know, the, the box sets that he's put out, they're, they're really cool, man. If you're a fan of old time or country music, Tennessee Ernie Ford, that box set's brilliant. Doc Watson, I think he was talking about, obviously, whatever he's working on tends to be his favorite uh, musician, but that, that's pretty cool as well. Check him out. Absolutely. I just appreciate him taking the time to to visit with us, and I hope our listeners enjoyed hearing from him as well and learning a bit as we dip into uh, music on our podcast. Stay tuned. To that point, Will, I was going to ask you if you had anything tonight on our Of Place segment. Uh, I think I have a little bit. It's not going to be long. We'll keep this brief. I know this has been a long episode, but while he was talking, you know, he's talking about country music. We, we asked him, you know, some of his favorite artists, his favorite songs. I know, and I've always known since I was a kid, what my favorite song is. 
I don't know if I would say they're my favorite artists, but my favorite song, and obviously it has to do with country music as this episode does. When I was a kid, I think it's more nostalgia. Actually, I love the song. I I just absolutely love it, but it may be more nostalgia. Dad used to have a tape. I don't know if it was broken and stuck in his car or if he just left it in there nonstop. So anytime we were with him, you know, that's that's what he played. And maybe it became my favorite song just because, you know, it makes me think of dad or, or it's very relatable. The words, even the lyrics. Mountain Music by Alabama. Sorry, bought that guitar and pocket. Play me some mountain music. Grandma and grandpa used to play. I just, I don't know. Maybe, and, you know, if we're talking about of place, Anytime I hear that song, it just gives me that sense of place. Makes me think of dad. Makes me think of home. Uh, I I don't know. It just gives me a tingle every time I hear it. <laughs> That's a great one. It's just it's just one of those songs, man. Songs music is has always been big for me, and and songs can take me back. Like like smells. Uh, when I hear a song, it can take me back to a moment in time, a specific moment. I can remember things from a song that I can't from just any other normal day. It can take me back to a moment, a special moment, a hard moment, whatever's going on in my life. I, when I've heard a song, I can just remember things. One of the things I remember from Mountain Music is going deer hunting with dad. I was too young to carry a gun. But I remember going with him and his friends and mountain music playing in the background. (laughs) I'm telling you, man, it just gives me that feeling. And I never have never told dad that it's my favorite song. Never told him why. Like like we we said before, you know, music was never really big in our household. But that song holds a special place for me. Just giving me that memory of dad and always will. it's, It's just one of those songs I, you know, I have a lot of songs in my pocket that give me a special memory, but, but that's one of them that that's at the top of my list. I won't tell him our secret, man. No secret safe right here. <laughs> well, what a good episode, man. I appreciate it. Uh, it's been good. I guess we'll uh, leave our listeners begging for more on this music series. Definitely. Uh, we got some good things coming up and and we, I just want to thank Ted again for being on the episode. He, he, he's such Obviously, you can hear you could hear from the episode, but he's he's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to, you know, bluegrass, old time country music. Absolutely. Thanks, Ted. I guess I'll end it like I usually do. Till next time. Peace. Frog on a corn and he did a ride. King on kitty kitty kimey all the sword and a pistol by his side. King on kitty kitty kimey all. Kimo 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 key. Way down yonder in a holler tree. Bat and a baby and a bumblebee. King on kitty kitty kimey all. He rode till he came to Miss Mouse's door. King on kitty kitty kimey all. And there he knelt upon the floor. 
sing on, giddy giddy kaimi all. Kaimoki mo kaimoki, way down yonder in a holler tree. Bat and a baby and a bumblebee. King on, giddy giddy kaimi all. He took Miss Mouse on his knee. King on, giddy giddy kaimi all. And said, little mouse, will you marry me? King on, giddy giddy kaimi all. Kaimoki mo kaimoki, way down yonder in a holler tree. Bat and a baby and a bumblebee. King on, giddy giddy kaimi all. Suitors three or four, King on Kitty Kitty Kaimi on, there they came right through the door. King on Kitty Kitty Kaimi on, Kaimo Kimo Kaimo Kiwi down yonder in a holler tree, Pat and a baby and a bumblebee. King on Kitty Kitty Kaimi on. Mr. Frog grabbed his horn and began to fight. King on Kitty Kitty Kaimi on that holler tree, it was a terrible night. King on Kitty Kitty Kaimi on, Kaimo Kimo Kaimo Ki. Under in a holler tree, fat baby and a bumblebee. King on kitty kitty kaimi on. He brought the suitors to the floor. King on kitty kitty kaimi on. Sword and his pistol he killed all four. King on kitty kitty kaimi on. Kaimo kimo kaimo ki. Way down yonder in a holler tree, fat baby and a bumblebee. King on kitty kitty kaimi on. They went to the parson the very next day. King on kitty kitty kaimi oh, and they went on their honeymoon right away. King on kitty kitty kaimi oh, kaimo kimo kaimo ki, way down yonder in a holler tree, fat baby and a bumblebee. King on kitty kitty kaimi oh, they live far off in that yonder tree. King on kitty kitty kaimi oh, and they have wealth and children free. King on kitty kitty kaimi oh, kaimo kimo kaimo ki, way down yonder in a holler tree, fat and a baby and a bumblebee.